Welcome to today's episode of Diversity and Inclusion, Revolution or Reform, where we talk all things DNI to ask whether DNI can save us, get us free, or move us towards collective liberation. I'm Connie. And I'm David. Each week on this podcast, we'll get into whether DNI is revolution or reform with guests who are DNI practitioners, activists, organizers, or academics and researchers in the field. We talk strategy, mindsets, growth, learnings, and mistakes, and even some juicy DNI confessions. Because at the end of each day, we're all humans just trying to do our best. All right, we are halfway through our first season of D&I Revolution or Reform, and we are so thrilled to have Brittany Janae join us for today's conversation. Just a little bit about Brittany before we dive in. Brittany is the Vice President of Learning and Innovation with the Winters Group, where she focuses on the design of learning experiences that shift perspectives, change hearts, and empower action in service of equity, justice, and inclusion. She has a wide range of expertise and experience in human resources, diversity management, affirmative action compliance, and so much more. And y'all, she is a creator of Liberated Love Notes, Critical Self-Reflections and Affirmations for the Culture, which is also now a podcast we're hearing. So excited to have all of that podcast energy. Welcome, Brittany. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's always weird hearing folks read your bio. We're definitely going to circle back to a lot of those things, but we always like to start by asking you to share the lineage of your work in DNI, equity and justice, liberation, if you will. Yeah, I so I was thinking about I was thinking about that question, having listened to uh, a few other episodes, and I was trying to like wrestle with like, do I want to offer like my professional lineage? Do I want to like discuss a little bit more about what is top of mind for me? And that's like my familial sort of experience and lineage. And so if y'all don't mind, I'll start with that and just kind of take you to or bring you back to Brittany Vice President, Brittany Liberated Love Notes. When I think about who I am and where and, and who I am, I think about my parents, Corey and Loretta, two teenage parents. Corey, a student of conscious hip hop, a student of Malcolm X, a father who went up to my elementary school, y'all, Guilford Elementary in Baltimore, Maryland, when my teacher told me that the A in my Brittany acrostic name poem couldn't mean African-American. She was like, no, you're just American. My father went up to the school and said something. When I think about where I'm from and how it shows up in how I show up in this work, I think about Loretta, my mom, who was like team boundaries before like boundaries were a thing. Like she made it real clear, like even as a, a young mom, like what she wouldn't allow and would allow around her children. And there's just something revolutionary I've been thinking about, revolutionary about telling or feeling empowered to tell your elders no, like especially in our community. And that shows up in just like how I show up. As a creator, like I think about my grandmother, Lucille, who's like jewelry maker, homemaker, like best mac and cheese maker and like curator of community. Elmer, who is my grandfather, a man of faith who like left the South, fleed the South as a young boy and learned how to read alongside his granddaughter. And I think about part of my lineage also being my paternal grandparents. And so Lula B, like the woman who just made it real clear that she just wasn't taking no stuff from like white folks as like the fastest typist and the only black woman in her medical billing team. Lewis, my grandfather, a man of like very, very few words. I assume though, like stories like untold. And so I'm like a sum of them. 
I've been reflecting on just how my 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 parents and certainly my my grandparents show up and how I show up in this work. And that has brought me to, I think about certainly I'm vice president of learning and innovation today, but came up through this work by way of human resources. I am from the Emma Bowen Foundation, y'all, which is a pipeline program for black and brown students interested in, in media. And so while I was at Howard or right before I started at Howard, was introduced to this program, a diversity initiative before I even knew it was a thing. But my pathway, and as my family would say, Brittany got that good corporate job. That was my pathway into, in just that space. Thought I was going to be somebody's Oprah as a journalism major, but ended up landing in HR, staying in HR. I will say journalism shows up in my affinity for and like deep interest into just like people's stories and like storytelling. After Comcast and that HR stint, right after Howard, got a, a role in employee engagement and diversity. And I'm like, wow, it's actually people in corporate companies like, you know, doing work to find, you know, black and brown people, minorities. I was deeply interested by that just due to like my own altruistic, I guess, nature and like values. Ended up finding my way into affirmative action and consulting training decided that there was probably some opportunity to complement like my lived experiences with some like theory and like practice. And so found my way at Georgetown, what do we call it? Diversity and Inclusion Master's Program. Shout out to Sakari Pinnock, the Black woman who really laid the foundation for me to just understand organizational systems and just like a whole new way. When I came into diversity, we was heavy on like the unconscious bias and cultural competence and differences, but really lacked from my perspective a power analysis and really like working with her and under her um, is where I think I started to think more critically about just like systems. Had the chance to put that in practice when I moved from Baltimore, D.C. area down to St. Petersburg, Florida as a transplant, as a transplant hired into this diversity and inclusion role. The function was talent acquisition and diversity. And I was literally the and diversity as like the first person like they, they you know, hired to focus on this. And I will say that St. Petersburg, I think, was where I shifted the most as a person, human, but certainly as a practitioner. Real easy to go into a community, especially as a transplant, like wearing all of the privilege. Like, you know, I know this and I got this job and I had joined a lot of community organizations trying to find friends in community, but also with this like baggage of my way and how we should do things are better because, you know, I come from up there. And, and it's so slow down here. And so that was an unlearning for me. St. Petersburg was an unlearning for me as it relates to just what it means to like be in or be of a community versus like to just be in a community because you got transplanted down there. And where I started to think more critically about, hmm, maybe there's a way for me to use myself as a Black body and organizational systems and more mindful. Maybe I can just show up, show up differently. This ain't just about a corporate job. From there, I joined the Winters Group and became a mom. I became Braxton's mom in that season. And so I joined the Winters Group in this real catch-all kind of role that has since evolved into Vice President of Learning and Innovation. And we can talk about that a little bit more. And today, as Connie mentioned, I'm probably also the creator of Liberated Love Notes, an extension of like my praxis, practice, desire for myself, not to just be woke, but also whole working in this, you know, work, right? So that's, that's who I am. 
Well, for real, thank you so much for weaving that story. It really gives like a holistic picture. I only want to poke like one hole in what you said. You haven't tried my mom's mac and cheese. So like, I don't know if you can say like, you're... <laughs> first of all, I'm just, first of all, what we're not going <laughs> to I'm just saying you haven't tried it. I'm just saying you haven't tried it. my grandmother's mac and cheese. <laughs> I'm just saying like maybe we can take this off pod but you know what I what I love about your work and it's really interesting I first heard you on the Winters Group podcast when about a year ago a year and change ago in our summer of quote unquote racial reckoning um Y'all were talking about this idea of decolonized diversity, equity, inclusion. And like you had also written an article talking about like all of these action steps that uh, organizations can take that don't necessarily fit the, and it's hard to say like the traditional DNI mold, but I'm curious, you know, it's been a year and change since the murder of Breonna Taylor, the murder of George Floyd, and we're a year and a half past, you know, everybody posting their black squares and starting their how to be an anti-racist reading group. Um, What have you seen through the Winters group in your work? And also just as you've watched the landscape evolve, has it reflected some of those quote unquote decolonized practices? That feels so, so shout out to you, David, because yeah, I want the people to know that that whole series decolonizing. And I've since been challenged to like decolonial post DEI series was like pre-COVID, pre-George Floyd. Like, like it was really as a result of me wrestling with whether or not I felt like the industry was being responsive to its espoused like goals and like values. So to get back to your question, when I think about what I've experienced in the past year, it's been a lot of, it's been emotionally taxing. It has been emotionally taxing. I'll be honest, in as much as the the death, I'm sorry, the murder of both Breonna Taylor and George Floyd are, are tragic, I felt hopeful. I felt hopeful that, wow, this could very much so be a turning point for the industry. I felt personally, because I am, and though I still contend with how to to show up in a way that is, you know, 100% just like true to me. I am still like committed to the, like the, the, the intentions of the industry. And yet it continues to fall significantly, significantly short. Some days I feel complicit in it. And as much as I felt a lot of hope and it feels weird to say optimism, especially just given the context today, I struggle. I struggle because a lot of the work that institutions committed to has been very difficult. And I was really excited about the push or openness to begin to embed like anti-racism principles into traditional DEI. And we experienced a lot of, a lot of resistance, was really excited to begin to build out, you know, learning journeys that are in some ways, a bit more intense that don't just engage the head, but, you know, I'm talking like using, you know, music, you know, more, more dialogue. And we get in some spaces and folks are just like, 
not as open to what I think are like modalities that could actually lead to transformation and shift. The intentions are there. And so I'm even sensitive to the fact as I have built really good relationships with CDOs, most of which are Black women, I'm like real sensitive to like the dynamic, the risk, the harm that they experience striving to be conduits for change and then partners with us as external consultants. And yet I struggle. Like I'm always wondering like, okay, are you pushing enough? How can I share risk with you? There's a lot of there's a lost conversation that we don't talk about when it comes to risk and like pushing systems, you will inherently lose something for a greater good. And so, you know, we got, it's about weighing, you know, weighing that, weighing that cost, weighing those risks. And so I don't know if I'm answering your question all the way, but it's not as I perhaps thought it was. I do think there is something to like worth selling. There are, there are some wins and by wins, I mean, you know, I will say I'm working on this one project that I get really excited about and I get excited about the incremental shifts. And so we got this one client and their CEO was one of the ones who I will say, you know, he came out using the language of anti-racism in his commitment and decided that all of his directors and above will like go through this intensive, which is essentially like a five part modular series, four hours in classroom. There's like three hours, like journey work. So it's pretty intensive from my perspective and very different than like vanilla DEI, you know? And so it was interesting because one of the facilitators like shared some shifts that she had tracked in session. And one of them was around them, like beginning to like interrogate like their, the language they're using in job descriptions, right? Another one was the VP of their like supply chain being at one of their distributors location and he beginning to like name and track power dynamics, something that he as a white man has never done before. So like there are wins and incremental shifts. I do wonder if it's enough. And then I also wonder if my expectations just need to level, right? Need to be, to, to be level, level set it. Anyway, Dave, you tell me if I answered your question. The short answer is yes, and like, okay, people are doing work and, you know, I feel very close to like the day-to-day experiences of just like regular Black people. I didn't share this in my intro, but I'm intimately partnered with someone who's a Black police officer. And so sometimes like DEI be feeling real mute, like a moot point. Some of the conversations we be having, you know what I mean? About just like the harm. So anyway, yeah. And that's part of my own work, like wrestling with all of that. Is it ever enough? Is it enough? I think you answered David's question and some. (laughs) There's so many um, parts that you shared that I want to come back to. And um, I think even in your response, you're asking more questions, right? Asking more questions of us in the field and the industry itself. One question that I did want to ask you, because I, I feel like often... So I've been a diversity, equity, inclusion practitioner for about a decade. I've gone to this point where I feel like I want to break up with D&I because it's really not committed to the intention mm-hmm. set forth. And I'm more rooted in justice and grassroots organizing more so than kind of what it looks like now in corporate spaces or even tech spaces or even nonprofit spaces. But I will say it's really rare to see learning as an integral part of D&I because we see a lot of trainings and trainings are different because they're focused on compliance often, right? Like sexual harassment training, right? Microaggression training. But your role at the Winters Group is specifically around learning. And I think that's a really powerful leverage because we do think about 
learning as a whole body, heart and mind connection, hopefully not just intellectualizing in the way that training often does. So I'm curious to know, because I also think of myself as a learner first and always and an educator having worked in schools for so long, what kind of learning experiences, designs, containers, structures have you found to be the most impactful and effective in D&I? And also kind of on the flip side, like what have you seen in terms of learning experiences to also be ineffective or causing more harm, right? Like it, kind of both sides of those questions. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so just in the last year, we have really had to shift just how we do like d- deliver and, and design. And so in as much as a lot of our clients were or expressed or were really became really interested in you know, anti-racism, white supremacy, we, that's very different than what we was doing. Let me just be frank. Like, right. Like, like education around cultural competence is real different. Like a modular experience around cultural competence and like unconscious bias. Those were very different. One of the things that worked well for us, certainly we started to do a bunch of, to be immediately responsive, but without being too reactive, like town halls, one of the things we learned real quick, though, was that those spaces, your second questions, can be more harmful than good. And so it's only been over the last year that we actually started to embed a caucus model in, into how we do learning and education. And that is not met without resistance. So let me just let me just I'm going to be really frank. Because there's levels to resistance. So there's there's institutional resistance, like to be honest, some HR and CDOs, because it's like, well, why do you want to split people up? Isn't that more separate if people need to learn from you? So that's that's one. There's also resistance from practitioners who this is new to. You know what I mean? Like there are there's a school of thought that still believes that people, more specifically black people, should feel comfortable or should feel like they need to share their stories for their white house. Like there, that is still very much so a thing. Like What's so harmful about that? How are we going to learn? There's even a school of thought where like, let me go find some senior managers and I'll plant them in this director training so that it's not all white people. Like that is a whole thing. Like I've had clients ask me that, like maybe we should expand it or maybe I can, you know, find a few advocates from the, the, the either the council or the ERG community and plant them in session. So it's not just white people working through their stuff. They can hear from their, their colleagues. And so hopefully that answers your questions, uh, your question around resistance, because there's like levels, there's levels. It ain't just leaders who don't know the work. Right. Um, there are, there are also practitioners who struggle with that, rightfully so, because it's very different than the interculturalists, the DEI that work. And so I have found that the sessions and the learning tracks that delineate the work that people need to be engaging in based on how they're situated in system ends up being a more responsive learning module. And so we have built out programs that are specific to just like white people working through whiteness patterns of white um, supremacy culture, you know, unlearning, uh, focusing on like the harm. That's where like we input like the data and the stories, which can be really traumatizing and re-traumatizing to black and brown people who have to sit through that if it is not in the caucus model. And so we have like the learning tracks for black and brown people that are more so around demystifying and working through internalized or injective forms of oppression, stories of agents centering just like our strengths and like joy, what it means to just sort of like honor like our cultural selves. And so like, you know, going through our 
sort of like lineage and cultural identities. We have learning tracks that are specific to organizational leaders. Now, those are typical tend to be, I'll be honest. So even the track that I had, the, the program that I referenced earlier, that one is a mixed is like a mixed bag of institutional leaders and power brokers where caucusing is built into specific sessions. I'm really big on just like using music and having people like react to song lyrics, right? I love love and have found that spaces where you're just teeing up a concept and allowing people to talk through in like smaller community has been huge. Recognizing that people process differently we have built into programs like pauses, which I track can be really difficult for facilitators because it's like, it's awkward. We don't know. No. So like actually building in moments for folks to scribe, to journal, to process, whatever that looks like, you know, building in obviously opportunities for, you know, just checking in and, and that kind of thing. I will say the the harmful piece has been hearing from, and we we actually added an accountability statement on our eva- or accountability marker on our evaluations. And so, you know, the normal evaluations on like how you feel, what you think, you know, what shifts did you encounter? But then there was a question, who did this session center? What narrative did this session center? Did it disrupt the, the status quo? How did you feel? Like, what is your, what was your checkout word? And we like aggregated by like race and other dimensions of diversity, just to hold ourselves accountable. I am alarmed or was alarmed when I got a bunch of feed forward from black and brown people that, hey, that that history section was actually very dehumanizing and like demoralizing. I didn't want to be there. We've since even started to offer our clients the option that, you know, black people, black and brown people, more specifically for the anti-racism S content can opt out to sessions. And that is okay. You know, I mean, can opt out of different segments of work in service of just like centering their well-being. I'll be honest, and as much as we offer and will propose the caucus model, there are some institutions who, no matter how we push, you know, decide not to move forward with it. And so just sort of like building in as a consulting partner, those checkpoints or opportunities for whether it's look for the exits you can leave kind of thing or opting out to certain content segments is how we try to minimize harm. In our goal to be responsive to clients immediately following the murders of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, I fear that perhaps there were sessions where Black and brown people did not feel as though the content was for them and therefore, you know, experienced some harm. I really appreciate you sharing all of that because I really hear from you how you and your the Winters group is using discernment and nuance when you're creating these learning experiences and trainings. And even in my work, I've started to discern between like, do people need education and training or do they need healing spaces, right? Because often those get lumped together and we're thinking about DEI, like we just put everyone in the same room together without distinguishing between the tracks and like what people actually need. And often white people need education spaces where they're learning, unlearning, unpacking. Um, And then people of color or people who have been harmed by various systems of oppression need more healing sessions. And that's kind of what I heard in your description. So I think that's, you know, I think that's something that we try to practice as well in our work. Um, But it's a beautiful kind of illustration of the complexities of what it means to learn in this work. Yeah. And it's so interesting because I've been like, I've really been contending with like, just reading, getting really clear on the limitations of DEI. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I found myself internalizing where the work has fallen short 
because I feel so connected to like my work, you know, as it relates to like the values, right? I mean, that's in, that's in, in essence why I liberated love notes in as much as it's a thing. It's also just, you know, hell is a love note to myself. Those are love notes to myself. But to your point, I've been thinking around like just the healing and education I've, I've been wrestling with. Okay. DI doesn't have like, what do you call those things? Like standard operating, you know, like how we don't have those. And so when you start bringing in just like the language of like healing, we assume that there needs to be education behind that. There's like, that's a whole body of work that needs to be like upskilled. And so I just wonder, wonder, cause I ain't got the answers, just like how we can be again, not reactive, but like responsive to how this work is expanding. Or if we just need to be like really clear on what the limitations of this work is, I don't have any resolve over that, but it's fear of mine. Like we doing too much here. You got people. Yeah. When you're, when you're talking about the lack of quote-unquote standards of, of practice, right? And I think you've articulated this in some ways, right? The goals of this work have changed over the years, right? From civil rights enforcement to corporate compliance to like, oh shit, no, we're anti-racist and we're we're trying to change things. And not everybody has made that evolution, right? Not all organizations for sure, but like, as you're saying earlier, not all practitioners, right? And so when you're bringing people in who are like, all right, how can we help you market to the gays or market to black folks or, you know, recruit people from all of these marginalized groups to work in your organizations without thinking about the internalized white supremacy within those organizations and not thinking about healing that, not thinking about going through that healing process themselves, like, there is nothing to move forward to. And so, that's why, you know, for me, it's restorative justice. For Connie, it's healing justice. Like, that's where we operate. But there is a need to have this conversation. So, yeah, that's where this podcast exists. I love how you brought up how, you know, your podcast and your project of Liberated Love Notes started as a space for you. Because I heard you say earlier, sometimes you feel complicit in upholding some of those systems and, you know, just needing another outlet to say what you need to say partially to yourself, but partially to others in the space. You know, you kind of started to talk about like the origins of it, but what is that project? And, you know, you are so gifted in the way that you share all these love letters. So just let the people know what's going on there. Yeah. So at the end of 2020, I started to really wrestle with uh, whether or not I was doing this work, quote unquote, like, right. Started to wrestle with like, you know what? Could this work like be a fraud? Like <laughs> we're in a global pandemic, you know, black bodies continue to be humiliated, dehumanized, killed, and putting out this the good the good word of DEI. I started to wrestle with like that just personally, like in some ways, like an identity crisis. Liberated Love Notes was originated from me very like affirmatively declaring that, you know what? I have to begin to to get really clear about who I am, just sort of like beyond DEI. And I did a post one day, uh, caused some heat for that post, by the way. I did a post one day and I was like, I am not my work. Like, you know what? This is some really, really good work. This is not who I am. It's not all I am. This work has excellent intentions and it will fall short, but that doesn't mean that I am defective. You know, this work 
you know, is nuanced as am I, this work is necessary or feels like necessary, like harm reduction work as I exist in systems and the people I love exist in systems. And it is not all that I am. And I can't be too like interconnected with this work that I start to compromise my sense of self, that I start to see it as beyond reproach. It'd be people going so hard for DEI that it's not, they're like not even open to like the possibility that we could like be doing it differently. It's not an, uh, it's not an affront to us as practitioners. It's an affront to, or there, it's an opportunity for the like industry to maybe organize and think differently. I think there has to be a disassociation between like who you are and like profession in order to like even be open to that. And with this work, since it's so interconnected with like our values and lived experiences, that can be very, very, very difficult. And so Liberated Love Notes started one as just like an affirmation to my damn self. And then like two, just kind of like tracking some of the stuff that like my friends and we would, we'd be venting in these group chats and they'd be venting in the group chats about some of the stuff that happens on the day to day. And my love language, my secondary love language is affirmation. And so really just sending like love notes to, to them, like, Y'all, it ain't you. Like, I promise you, it's not you. The system is jacked up. Something about that is affirming because sometimes like being so entrenched in our experiences can have us thinking, can have me thinking that I am somehow, you know, deficient or defective and not the, not the system. My significant other is a, I just told y'all, is a Black man in the in the field of policing right come on like this stuff be feeling real real i'm trying to find the one i wrote for him just to give you here it is if i am working within a white institution that has caused harm towards black people i recognize that my proximity to whiteness may create distrust among my community this is not an indictment on me this is a signal of my responsibility to reassure my allegiance to black liberation. And so, you know, you got responsibility while you're in there, you know, to do and show up how you can. And so just like reminders, that's where liberated love notes literally reminders to my friends, myself, my community. I also wanted to be very clear that in as much as I am a DEI practitioner, I am a lover of Black people and, and deeply like invested in certainly our learning, but like just wholeness and understanding of ourselves. I feel like I was privileged to kind of, I guess, get access to some of this theory, this theory by way of education, right? And academia. And I want those conversations to be more accessible. And so that's kind of like, you know, we're liberated love notes and hopefully how my, my praxis or practice will evolve. I still got to pay the bills and make a living for my child and the people I care for. <laughs> and other things may, you know, hopefully be on the horizon that uh, allow me to continue to just grow into the, evolve into the fullness of who I am. Liberated love notes. And as much as it's just the cards, I shared the idea with one of my good friends, Zach Nunn. I was like, yeah, I was like, I'm thinking about doing these affirmations, these affirmation cards, love notes for black people. What are your thoughts? He's like, I think you need to do a podcast. And I was like, I don't really got time for that. <laughs> And I was like, I really don't have time. And then he was like, oh, just think about it. And one of my, so I had three words at the top of the year, clarity, ease, collective. 
And so I was like, if I do anything, it's about to be with ease because liberated love notes is not about to stress me out. Like it's not about to be something that is burning me out. And it has been in some ways just kind of like reparative for me. I go onto the podcast and process like my own new learnings. And at, at the top of the, the segment, David mentioned, I am gifted the last episode, which really came about as I'm like reading this book and learning more about the ways in which spirituality is so intrinsic to who I am and in the broader Black collective and how we show up in helping each other. The name of the book is uh, Spirituality and the Black Helping Tradition in Social Work. And so Liberated Love Notes is my own learning, unlearning, remembering, evolving, and am just, you know, processing and continuing to think of ways I can just make it more accessible and expansive. Yeah, as much as the DEI world is your job. And like, I really took that to heart, what you just said, like, I have created this platform around restorative justice. And I'm in the season of like, trying to tease out like, what is David's work? And what is like David versus like, what is restorative justice work, which I think is really important. And yet, like, you have still chosen to be dedicated to the DEI world, at least through the Winters Group. What's something that we haven't said yet that you want folks in the DEI world to know? What do I want folks in the DEI world to know? I want... I want my fellow practitioners to rid ourselves with the... Have you ever heard the phrase, like, you're preaching to the choir? Let's rid ourselves with this notion that like we are just solely the, the choir, that we get it. Let's rid ourselves with the heaviness of needing to like know and do and react and respond without time for like pausing to like do our own like personal work. I have actually experienced harm in the context of community with other DEI practitioners. My clarity allows for me to know that, you know, just like these systems, like that harm is structural. It is a manifestation of like trauma, right? It is a manifestation of not engaging in like the unlearning, like work and like relearning work. It's a manifestation of like being so, I guess, consumed by like resistance especially for the folks who have been in this work for a long time, release the obligation of like knowing or needing to know everything without the openness of to being a learner. And so that's what I want DEI practitioners to like embody as, you know, lest we end up creating or perpetuating like the same cultural, like norms, undertones, and realities that we seek to dismantle with our clients. And so, yeah, I want DEI practitioners to know we got our own work too. We have our own work too. And we absolutely deserve to process, heal, unravel, and engage in that work. And it is a, it is, and it's an imperative. That's a beautiful reminder and a call in for all of us and DEI practitioners. Another question that we always ask our guests is, do you think that D&I is revolution or reform? I, you know, I think, <laughs> I, I think DEI in its current status, it's heavy on the reform. This is necessary. This is harm reduction work. That's how I've been, that's how I make, this is, this is harm reduction work. I do 
believe and I'm hopeful that DEI can evolve into a practice that like is a pathway to more like revolutionary work, right? That is a pathway to like a more revolutionary understanding of just the world we live in. I am hopeful around that. DEI as it is though, for me is, is very much so reform, harm reduction. And it's necessary. I'm not ascribing lesser value to, to reform any more than it is just uh, clarity that in the context of institutions that exist in a much broader you know, function in society of capitalism, there are limitations. I wrestle with the fact that this body of work only exists, like in its, in its current state, this body of work is sustained by like harm and like pain that happens within institutions. And so with that in mind, with that reality in mind, with capitalism in mind, I think in the short term, this is reform. In the short term, this is unfortunately incremental shifts that matter that hopefully become pathways into more revolutionary thinking in the organizational context. I want to ask a follow-up question, but I'm going to frame it as our next question, but more of a reflection. When I think about our DEI confession, this is where we confess something that uh, we've either messed up on or have been embarrassed by in our journey in this work or something that we've learned from and that we're going to share. So I'll share one, Connie will share one, and uh, then you get to share one. Kind of something that you said in there about like assuming that we're speaking or preaching to the choir right? I often find myself having these high level conversations about revolution with people who aren't about that, not because like they aren't about it, but just because like they haven't even thought about this work in those terms. It's just about, you know, how are we creating a better work environment for people? Not like how do we create something that will like bring substantive change and like not assuming where people are and then meeting them there is something that I need to continue to work on. Right. Because not everybody knows these transformative, restorative healing justice words, and they don't always mean the same thing to others. Connie, what's your confession? That was a good one, David. Cause that I, I felt that one. Um, the one I'm thinking about today. And I think um, Brittany you actually mentioned power analysis at the top when you were talking about, I think, a client that you had worked with um, or even just bringing a power analysis into the work of diversity, equity, inclusion. I remember being a very, very new, quote unquote, DEI practitioner and not having any sort of power analysis in my work. Like I t- did not examine how power showed up, whether it was in affirming or positive ways. Um, definitely did not examine how it showed up in harmful and toxic ways. And I think about that often and I have a lot of regret because I know it caused a lot of harm on people and communities most impacted by white supremacy and other various forms of oppression. And I think one of my worries now, and it's coming up as I talk about this confession, is just that because of how DEI has been mainstreamed so rapidly without kind of standardized benchmarks around like, what do we mean when we talk about justice? What do we mean when we talk about equity? People are not bringing a power analysis into work. And I think that's terrifying for me because I've been through that and have experienced it both as someone who enacted it and as also someone who's experienced it. Um, so that's what's sitting with me today. And it actually is you brought this up in a beautiful way and weaved it throughout the conversation. So it really kind of brought that out for me today. 
What about you, Brittany? So, you know, I've been trying to like, really, I think I, I, I know and have tracked that my learning and unlearning and access can like show up as like hyper and overly critical. There have been moments where, and as much as like learning and remembering and all these things should be a gift. I know that there have been moments where I have in some ways like weaponized like this coming into arrive this, you know what I mean? Like this arrival or arriving or knowing or expanding. And so I'm I'm like, I have to interrupt. And I think about how like that, you know, you mix that with like perfectionism and I have like really outlandish expectations for people who just don't know, you know, I have to be mindful of, and I, I ain't no therapist, but I've been like, I'm in this communal consultation. So I'm part of my personal practice has included, you know, wrestling with the, the trauma, the racialized trauma that I have embodied and experienced. It's actually a program with Resma, Resma Menicum. And I've been contending with like the horizontal trauma, as he names it, that black and brown body project onto each other. And so sometimes that can, you know, show up as me, myself, you know, causing harm by with this sort of like finger of expectation or expectations of perfectionism in learning and growing when that's just simply not fair nor true and hella problematic, right? When I think about it. So that's my confession, my, my, my desire to like be in community and create these containers for learning sometimes too quickly ends up um, being overly critical and not a gift, but like a weapon. And I don't want that. I don't want that. I'm catching myself more. So much growth for all of us. Hopefully you, the listeners, have grown as well. Where can people support you and your work in the ways that you want to be supported? Look, if your um, institution is trying to do DEI work, hit me up at the winners group right? Follow us on Inclusion Solution. For folks who want to follow Liberated Love Notes, the podcast is out there on all of the platforms. Before I forget, I actually, a few months ago, so for word to and credit to my good friend, one of the things that I shared is, and I'm putting it out in the sphere, like I don't want to sell Liberated Love Notes. Like I want these to just be like a resource and free, like that's like pie in the sky vision. And so my friend gifted me with the language of grace economics, my friend Harris Tate gifted me with the language of grace economics. And so I have since created an option on the website, BrittanyJenny.com, for individuals who have the means to purchase liberated love notes as a gift for others. I have a community cafe here in Baltimore called Dove Code, where I just leave liberated love notes. It's a Black-owned cafe. And so like anytime someone donates a liberated love note to be given to someone else, I take it over to Dovecote and, or I have an option on the site for black people to say, I want a liberated love note, but I don't want to pay for it. And I will send it to them. And as much as individuals continue to donate and gift where you have the means. And so where you have the means and certainly buy them like for your ERGs and black people in your life and all the things, but where you have the means also invite folks to donate, gift, so that we can put them in the hands of folks who, who want them, who need them. BrittanyJanae.com, BrittanyJanae, everywhere else on social media. We will include it in the show notes. Um, and we wanted to say thank you so much, Brittany, for joining us. I 
definitely feel really nourished after our conversation. I, I just feel like I got so much and my heart is really full. So thank you for today's conversation. Thank you. Wow. I so appreciated that conversation. It was a much slower, more relaxed than many of our others. So we're going to keep our reflections a little bit shorter and take a page out of Brittany's practice as a facilitator and ask y'all to take some time to jot down some of your notes and your reflections for yourself. Assuming you're not driving, safety first. For me, and this didn't necessarily get brought up in the podcast, but in the podcast episode that she launched on Liberated Love Notes the day that we recorded this about us being gifted, I'm thinking a lot about how these systems of oppression that we live in or work under often suppress our gifts. And I'm really thinking about the gifts that I have and how I can let those shine through or not. What about you, Connie? Hmm, I love that. I think what's really sticking out for me or really resonating with me is her reminder about how for DI practitioners and really just for all of us to kind of get rid of this notion of preaching to the choir. And I've seen this in my work as a diversity, equity, inclusion practitioner, where I've also said, like, I know I'm preaching to the choir, um, but that actually does cause harm and stops learning and transformation in many ways because we are positioning ourselves as experts when Really, we all have learning to do. We all have growth to do. And there are gifts that we can receive from others. So that really stood out to me. Um, And yeah, just really thinking and sitting with a lot of what Brittany has shared. I, as I mentioned, feel really nourished and will be journaling myself after this. Beautiful. Well, now's your opportunity, y'all. Take a pause. Thank you so much to Brittany for all of her time, wisdom, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode next time. We'd also love to hear from you. Is DNDI revolution or reform? Send us your thoughts and juicy DEI confessions as a voice memo or text to revolutionorreform at gmail.com. Make sure you're subscribed on whatever platform you're listening on right now so you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or review and share this with a friend, old school, or you know, with Karen at work. Later, y'all. Bye. (laughs) Bye.